So last week's episode was all about moving, and the impetus for this week's episode actually started at a housewarming party. I was talking with this friend of mine who's a musician, he's a super talented bassist, and I was talking to him about this paid promotion video that I was doing on TikTok coming up. And I was telling him it was kind of challenging because I wasn't able to actually use any of this artist's recordings, I was only allowed to use instrumental cover versions of their work. And this friend was like, oh why, I thought you were working with his record company, why couldn't you use his records? And I was like, no, this was actually a video for his publishing company. And I could see kind of a blank stare, and I said, the publishing company just controls the rights to the songs that he wrote, not the recordings of them. And my friend said, oh, who knew that those were different things? And I was kind of taken aback because I thought everybody did. But then I was watching videos on TikTok, and I was watching a video about the country artist Luke Combs and his recent hit cover of Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car. And someone in the comments said that Tracy Chapman had not given her permission for him to cover the song and that he had exploited a loophole to be able to cover it. And my mind was blown because that is so insanely wrong, which I should be used to by now on social media. People will post things with the utmost confidence and have no idea what they're talking about. But to call covering a song a loophole is crazy. Being able to cover a song without permission is not a loophole. It's a very intentional part of copyright law. Then in the comments of that video, someone else commented, you only have to get permission if you're changing the words, like Weird Al. They said, Weird Al was never able to do any parodies of Prince songs, they said, because Prince wouldn't give him permission. And that is also completely wrong. Weird Al asks artists if they would mind if he parodied their songs as a courtesy, but not because he legally has to. Parody falls under fair use, which is a protected exception to copyright law. But so all these things happen back to back to back, and it got me thinking that maybe people do not know as much about the way music and copyright law works as I thought. And so I thought maybe it would be an interesting episode to break it down for people in a fun way. I personally find copyright law fascinating. I'm not a lawyer. I did go to law school, but I'm not practicing. I'm not an expert in copyright law. I'm just a passionate amateur. But I think it's really interesting because I think there are a lot of problems with copyright law. So... Today, we have something a little different. Instead of focusing on three artist stories, we're going to talk about the crazy world of music and copyright. In the first segment, we're going to get into what copyrights are, their history, and why the laws exist. In the second segment, I'm going to get more into the difference between the copyright for an underlying musical composition and the copyright for a sound recording. And I'm going to do it by talking about one of the most famous pop stars in the world who pulled off one of the most baller moves in music history. And then in the third segment, I want to talk about a segment of copyright law that is very relevant to the current musical world, but it's very complex and I think also full of a lot of problems. And that is the world of sampling. But I promise you this will be fun and hopefully you learn enough to hold your own at the next party that you're at where a conversation about copyright law breaks out. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across time, across space? The fragile moments that could as well be lost, but we hold on. Now, I do apologize in advance. This episode is going to be pretty U.S.-centric, since my area of sort of expertise is only in U.S. copyright law. But... Our copyright laws do have their basis in English common law, and in fact can be traced back originally to Ireland, to an issue over a copyright in which a literal battle was fought. The Battle of Cauldrimny. See, a battle. I told you this was going to be fun. This is the story of the Battle of Cauldrimny. It started with an argument between two saints. St. Cumkille was a missionary in the 6th century who was obsessed with books. He wrote out 300 books in his lifetime, by hand. Keep in mind, we are still nearly 1,000 years before the invention of the printing press. And one day, in the year 560, St. Cumkille borrows a book from another saint, St. Finian. Now there are two possibilities over what this book was. Most people say this book was a book of psalms and other religious work a Psalter, and that it may in fact have been a Psalter that still exists. There is a Psalter, 
known as the Kachik of St. Comkile, that is presumed to have been written by St. Comkile around this time period and is the oldest surviving manuscript in Ireland and the second oldest Latin Psalter in the world. The other theory is that it was the whole Vulgate Bible, one of the original Latin translations of the Bible and the first one ever in Ireland. But whichever book it was, Comkile wanted it bad so he secretly made himself a copy. When Finian found out, he was furious. He said, that's my book. You can't make a copy of it. Comkili refused to hand over his copy and Finian said, then they would take the matter to the King of Ireland himself. Comkili said, sure. For one thing, he didn't think he was doing anything wrong because he was just spreading the word of God, but also, the King of Ireland, Dermot MacCarville, was a relative of his. But King Dermot ruled in favor of Finian. His ruling captured essentially the basis of copyright law even to this day. To every cow belong its calf, to every book its copy. And so Comkili accepted the ruling. He gave the book back and moved on. Just kidding. He gathered up another tribe and started an insurrection against the king that resulted in the Battle of Koldremne, where 3,000 people died. For his crimes, Comkili was sent to Scotland, where he was told he needed to help convert one person there for every person that had died in the battle. Okay, so that battle definitely happened. Did it really happen over a book? That we don't really know for sure. The historical sources on the story are not the most accurate. But what we do know is that for nearly as long as we've been able to create copies of things, there have been disputes over who has the right to copy someone else's work. The first actual copyright law in the world was also in the UK. It was passed during the reign of Queen Anne, so you'll usually hear it referred to as the Statute of Anne, or sometimes the Copyright Act of 1710, because that's the year it was passed. But its official name is actually an act for the encouragement of learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of copies during the times therein mentioned. So what was going on in the world at the time was that prior to 1710, the right to copy something was controlled by a guild of printers. They were called the Stationers Company, and they were the only ones that were allowed to print anything. If they found you making illegal copies, they were allowed to come in, destroy your bootleg copies, and throw you in jail. And the Stationers Company also only gave rights to the publishers of a book. The author of a work had no rights to it. So writers were really upset about this, and a bunch of them actually led by John Locke. Two players, two sides. One is light, one is dark. Not the guy from Lost, but the actual 18th century philosopher. They complained enough to Parliament that a new bill was passed. The Statute of Anne gave the rights to copy to the authors of the work. But another important thing it did was put a limit on that copyright. And this depended on when the book was published. So if it was published after April 10th of 1710, then the length of the copyright was 14 years. If it was published before then, it was 21 years. But that wasn't a hard cap. If an author survived until after the copyright expired, so if they actually lived more than 14 years after they wrote the work, then they would be granted an additional 14-year term. This is a very important part of copyright law, and it's still part of copyright law today, that you only get a limited amount of time to have control over your work. The idea is we want to protect the rights of authors to get paid for their work. In order to be able to make the most amount of money off of their work, they have to be able to control the right to copy it, so that people like that saint don't come in and just copy their work and give it out for free, or sell it and take the profits themselves. We want to protect the rights of the author. But we have to balance that against the rights of the public. At some point, we want this work to be widely and freely available so that the public can benefit from the knowledge. And that's called going into the public domain. So after a certain amount of time, the work no longer belongs to the author or the author's heirs. The work belongs to the public. So if I wanted to do an adaptation of Shakespeare, I don't have to go track down Shakespeare's relatives. It's in the public domain. Now, the Statute of Anne didn't apply to the American colonies, even though we existed at the time it was written. But the Statute of Anne did have a big influence on us. If colonies did have their own copyright laws, they mostly followed the Statute of Anne. 
And then when the United States of America became its own country, and then we got a constitution, the founding fathers thought that copyrights were so important that they actually put it in the constitution. And not as an afterthought like the first 10 amendments. I'm talking right in Article 1, up there with the power to tax. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. It says, the United States Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Now, it should be noted that this clause says authors and inventors. So even though this clause is called the copyright clause, it actually deals with copyrights and patents. A patent is something that an inventor gets. But you cannot patent a song, and therefore, I don't know anything about it. I don't know patent law. I only know about music. Oh, and if you want to talk about trademarks, that's not even covered in this clause. That's in the Commerce Clause, so don't ask me about that. So copyright is established in the Constitution, and then the new Congress in 1790, they had to decide exactly what limited times would mean. And they just followed the Statute of Anne. 14 years plus one renewal of an additional 14 years if the copyright holder was still alive. And the reason I keep talking about this limited term is because its definition will change drastically over the years. That first copyright law was good for about 40 years. Then in 1831, they passed an updated act. So we had John Locke pushing for the Statute of Anne, and funny enough, there's another famous historical figure involved in this 1831 act. This one was pushed for by Noah Webster. He's like the dictionary, Miriam and Webster, that guy. And there were some big changes in this act. One, they expanded that initial term. Instead of 14 years, 28 years. And then, most relevant for our purposes, they added musical compositions to the list of works that could be copyrighted. Initially, copyright was basically only thought of in terms of books. But then, as new technology has been invented, we've had to amend the copyright law a bunch of different times to keep specifically naming the new technologies. Eventually, we realized that we should just keep it really vague so that basically any kind of art you could think of would be covered under the act. But another thing about that first copyright for musical compositions, the copyright was only for copies of compositions in printed form. So that's sheet music. Nobody had any CDs in 1831. Then the next major change didn't come until the Copyright Act of 1909. This happened during the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt, and he was adamant that the copyright laws urgently needed revision. One of the big problems going on in the world of copyright was with player pianos. So this was like a machine where you would put in these perforated sheets of music, and the machine would read the perforated sheets and it would play music. And these player piano manufacturers were not paying any royalties to the songwriters of these songs. This culminated in a lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court. It was Whitesmith Music Publishing Co. That was the publisher that represented this songwriter. Specifically, it was this German-born songwriter named Adam Giebel. And two songs that he wrote, one was called Little Cotton Dolly, and one was called Kentucky Babe. Um, don't look them up, they're pretty racist. But Whitesmith Music Publishing was suing Apollo Co., which was a company that made player pianos. But the songwriter lost. The Supreme Court basically said the current Copyright Act does not cover this technology. We can't say that a machine that reads notes and plays music is the same thing as making a copy of your song. So Congress fixed this by passing the Copyright Act of 1909. And it added in this very important provision called a mechanical license. The mechanical part refers to those player pianos, but that's still the term that is used today. So now the player piano company, if they wanted to use the music of a songwriter, they had to get a license. But they did make the license compulsory, so you don't need the songwriter's permission. As long as you give them notice and you pay the fee, you can produce their song. This is the same principle that allows people to cover songs. So that's why Luke Combs can cover Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, whether she likes it or not. And it's definitely not a loophole. It is an established part of copyright law that is over 100 years old. It goes back to this statute, what he did when he covered that song, and what anybody who covers a song that appears on a record does, they get a mechanical license. Other things you do need permission for, and we'll get to those later. And one more thing about the Copyright Act of 1909, it also extended that limited term again. Then after the 1909 Act, with just some minor tinkering along the way, Congress decided that we were good for like 70 years. This is kind of a repeating pattern. Technology advances, the copyright law gets out of date, and then years later, Congress finally fixes it. So after the 1909 Act, we see the invention of movies, television, sound recording, radio, um, also a device that's pretty important for copying, 
the copy machine. We got into the point where astronauts had sung songs on the moon, and the copyright law was still talking about sheet music and player pianos. I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December. Now, May, May. So in the 1970s, it was in desperate need of an overhaul. Enter a woman named Barbara Ringer. Barbara Ringer was a lawyer who graduated as one of only a few women in her class at Columbia Law School in 1949. It should be noted Ringer came from a good background. Her mother had been the only woman in her graduating class at Michigan Law in 1923. But after graduation, Barbara goes to work for the U.S. Copyright Office. And Barbara rose through the ranks at the Copyright Office and became recognized as one of the country's foremost authorities on copyright law. She became the first woman adjunct professor at Georgetown Law School, and by 1971, over 20 years into her career, she was the leading candidate to take over as the Register of Copyrights. That's the highest copyright-related position in the country. That's like the queen of copyrights. But a male colleague of hers was chosen instead which probably happened all the time in 1971 and the years before that, but Barbara said hell no, and she sued alleging discrimination. And she brought receipts. She had more experience, she had better performance reviews, and she won her lawsuit. And they removed this other guy, and on November 19th, 1973, Barbara Ringer became the first female register of copyrights. She served until 1980 and then had another term from 1993 to 1994. And since 94, there have been five more registers after her, and all of them have been women. Now, Barbara had been pushing for a revision to the 1909 Copyright Act since she began working for the Copyright Office. She argued that copyright law needed to change to keep up with all of the technology that the drafters of the 1909 Act could have never dreamed of. So thanks in part to her urging, this new copyright law was finally passed in 1976. The first thing they did was they changed that limited term again. Instead of 28 years, the change was made to the entire life of the author plus 50 years. So the author could be taken care of and potentially their children and their grandchildren. So in 1976, if you wrote the greatest book ever written and then you lived for another 50 years, that book wouldn't enter the public domain for 100 years. So if you're thinking, wow, this is really stretching the definition of limited terms that's in the Constitution... Other people have thought that too, and they've sued saying that this is a perpetual term, and courts have found that it's not. As long as there's some kind of limit, it doesn't matter how long the term is. This part has actually been amended in 1998. This was something called the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. Well, I don't know why that's true. Now, if you're thinking, why did the guy who sang I Got You Babe get his name on legislation? It wasn't because of his work with Cher, this was because he was a congressman at the time who had been working on this bill, and then he passed away before the bill passed, so they named it in his honor. Some people call it the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, because part of it was extending the terms of corporate works. The first Mickey Mouse cartoon, Steamboat Willie, was about to enter the public domain, so they extended the term that kept that alive, but there was actually a lot of different people who were lobbying for that. It wasn't just Disney, it was basically every movie studio, every major sports team, any corporation that had copyrights in intellectual property they were trying to protect wanted an extension. Another really important thing in the 1976 Act was that it codified this doctrine called fair use. Some courts had talked about fair use before, but it wasn't actually part of the copyright law. Now it's specifically written into the law that there is a fair use exception to using a copyrighted work. And we'll get into this more later. But basically, if you infringe on somebody's copyright, but you were doing it for, let's say, educational purposes or for the purposes of criticism or for a parody, then that is not copyright infringement. The law also clarified what it meant to copyright something. It established this idea that once you fixed something in a tangible medium of expression, then it had been copywritten. So if I write a song and I hum it to myself in the shower, my song is not copywritten. But if I sit down and write the lyrics on a piece of paper, or if I record it into a tape recorder, I've now fixed that song into a tangible medium of expression, and it's now copyrighted. Some people think that you have to actually register a copyright with the Copyright Office in order for it to be valid. That's not true. That just helps you defend your copyright. As soon as you turn your idea into something tangible, theoretically, it's protected. And also, just one little cool thing about the 1976 Act, one thing that Barbara Ringer had insisted be put into it was gender-neutral language. If you read previous acts, like that 1909 Act, 
it assumes that the copyright holder is a man. It has lines like, if he uses the musical composition himself, Barbara Ringer made sure that the 1976 act just referred to the copyright holder as a person. Barbara Ringer, by the way, died in 2009. She received several awards in her lifetime for her contributions to copyright law, and she left behind a really big collection of copyrighted works, 1,500 books and 20,000 movies, and she donated them all to the Library of Congress. comes to that question I talked about in the beginning. What's the difference between a song I wrote and a song I recorded? What's the difference between a musical composition and a sound recording? There's actually a story I can tell that illustrates this very well. There's this little club in Nashville, Tennessee called the Bluebird Cafe. It's a few miles away from Music Row, it's in a shopping center, and it originally opened in 1982, intended to be a gourmet restaurant. Then they started having live music every once in a while, they added a stage, but eventually it turned into one of the most important clubs in Nashville. Garth Brooks had played a showcase there that got him a record deal, and in 2005, a record executive named Scott Borchetta was there to see a performance by a 14-year-old girl from Pennsylvania. Scott had met her before. He had heard her demo while he was an executive at DreamWorks Records, but he was about to start his own record label, an independent label called Big Machine Records. And the first artist he signed was the girl he was watching at the Bluebird, Taylor Swift. One advantage for Taylor signing with this independent record label was she gets more control than she might have otherwise gotten. And that's something that's very important to her, even at this young age. Taylor had been writing her own songs since she was 12. In fact, she had a publishing deal as a songwriter before she had a record deal. A publisher is somebody who deals with the songs that you write. They can help get your songs out there, get them recorded by bigger artists, or get them covered by people, get them put in movies or video games, all sorts of stuff. And usually in exchange, they get a cut of your royalties. And then the record label traditionally is the one that deals with the actual recordings. They might sign a performer who's not even a songwriter. And the record labels can have a lot of sway over what and how the artists record. One of Taylor Swift's idols was Shania Twain, and when Shania Twain first signed a big record deal, she was forced by her label to work with a bunch of producers that she didn't want and songwriters that she didn't want. They didn't want to use her original songs that she'd written. But Big Machine, maybe because they're this newly formed independent label, they don't force her to do that. Taylor wrote or co-wrote every single song on her debut album herself. Big Machine did try to get her to work with producers that they chose, but Taylor insisted on using this guy Nathan Chapman. He had produced her demo, but he had never produced a commercially released album before. But Taylor already knew how she wanted her songs to sound, and in Chapman she had a producer that believed in her, so she told Big Machine, this is the guy we're using. They recorded the album in four months at the end of 2005, and then Taylor went and finished her freshman year of high school. But the thing that Taylor didn't have control over was the ownership of those recordings that she had made. Those are owned by her record label, Big Machine. And there wasn't much she could do about that. That was, at the time, very much a standard record label contract. In exchange for them investing in her financially, they get to own the recordings that she makes. And then she receives royalties from the sale of the albums. And in Taylor's case, she receives royalties from two different streams. So there are two different copyrights at play when you hear a song on the radio or on Spotify, or if you're old like me on a vinyl record, there is the sound recording and the underlying composition of the song. So just as an example, let's use the Taylor Swift song, You Belong With Me. This was a song off her second record, Fearless. Taylor had overheard one of the guys in her band on a phone call with his girlfriend. And she can tell that the girlfriend is kind of yelling at him and he's getting defensive, and she starts imagining an idea for a song. A song written from the perspective of a girl who has a crush on a close male friend who has a girlfriend. She actually collaborates on this song with another songwriter, a woman named Liz Rose, and then they record the song and it's produced by Nathan Chapman. So Taylor and Liz Rose, as the writers of the song, they get songwriter royalties. But Taylor also sings the song on the recording, so she gets performer royalties. 
And the songwriting royalties she shares with not just Liz Rose, but also with her publishing company. And then her performer royalties she splits with her record company. And Taylor owns the song, the lyrics, the melody, the specific notes of the song. But that recording that she made with Nathan Chapman that was on her debut album Fearless that was put out on Big Machine Records, that recording is owned by Big Machine. And the copies of that record that were made, they're made from one master recording, so you'll often hear this referred to as the record label owning the masters. And even though this is a common arrangement, it's not one that artists have always been happy with. Prince was extremely vocal in the 80s and 90s about his frustration with not owning his own masters. That's why he wrote the word slave on his face and changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol. It was in protest of this arrangement. It didn't make any sense to Prince that he wrote the song Purple Rain, but somebody else owned him singing it. And Prince even threatened to re-record his entire catalog just so he could own the recordings himself. But he never actually did that. So Taylor's first album was a hit, and in the ensuing years, she grows from a popular country artist to one of the most popular artists of any genre in the world. She also went through a lot of public scrutiny in her personal life, and had a couple of bizarre incidents involving the producer-rapper Kanye West. And weirdly enough, those are related to copyright law. So, the first incident happened at the 2009 MTV Video Music Awards, which took place September 13, 2009 at Radio City Music Hall in New York. So Taylor was performing that night. She was doing the song, You Belong With Me, which was a big crossover hit. You Belong With Me was also nominated for Best Female Video. And Taylor showed up to the red carpet in like a literal Cinderella stagecoach. And Kanye West, who wasn't performing that night, but was nominated for four awards, including Video of the Year. And this was for songs from his album 808s and Heartbreak. He showed up to the red carpet, openly carrying a bottle of Hennessy. And you can see pictures of Kanye from throughout the night, showing that bottle getting gradually emptier and emptier. According to one MTV executive, she asked him what he was doing and if he was okay. And Kanye just answered... I'm just here living my best life. They put Kanye West in the front row, and he apparently was sharing the bottle with a bunch of other people, including Fallout Boy's Pete Wentz was drinking from the Hennessy bottle. So before even the first commercial break, Kanye is wasted. And really early in the night, they give out the award for best female video. And Taylor Swift won. She beat out Pink, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Kelly Clarkson, and Beyonce for the song Single Ladies. And drunk Kanye decided that this was an injustice, and a couple of sentences into Taylor's speech, he gets up from his seat in the front row, goes up on stage, takes the mic out of Taylor's hand, and famously says, Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. The camera cuts to an embarrassed Beyonce who says, oh, Kanye, and Taylor Swift, who's 19 years old, Kanye is 32, um, didn't know how to react. She's shocked. She goes backstage. She's bawling her eyes out. Kanye gets removed from the show. And what makes the incident even more ridiculous is that later in the night, the biggest award of the show, Video of the Year, was won by Beyonce. And she brought Taylor out on stage with her to let her finish her speech, but it was pretty awkward for everybody. And then the next day, everybody's talking about this incident. Twitter is still pretty new at the time, and it's flooded with tweets about it. It's one of the first things that really showed the power of Twitter. Even President Barack Obama addressed it. He said Kanye was a jackass. And Kanye apologized. But a few years later, he makes everything even worse when he releases this song called Famous. This was off his 2016 album, Life of Pablo, and it includes the lyrics. I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. Goddamn. I made that bitch famous. Now, people attacked the lyrics immediately as being misogynistic, but then Kanye came out and claimed that Taylor had okayed the lyric. So Taylor had to come out and make a statement saying that no, she did not okay that lyric. Then Kanye's wife at the time, Kim Kardashian, actually leaked audio snippets of this phone call between Kanye and Taylor, a phone call that was actually illegally recorded under California law. But to be fair, Kim had not gone to law school yet, so maybe she didn't know. But in this audio that gets leaked on Snapchat, of all things, Kanye tells Taylor he's going to rap that they might still have sex. And Taylor is okay with it. She gets it. It's tongue-in-cheek. She appreciates him asking. Then he tells her he's going to say that he made her famous, and she pushes back on that. 
says it's kind of ridiculous because she'd already sold 7 million albums before that incident, but she says, okay, that's your perspective, go for it. So people hear these excerpts, and now people are turning on Taylor, they're calling her a snake, accusing her of lying, but Taylor insists that she was never told that she would be referred to as that bitch. It was him saying, I made that bitch famous that she didn't like. Then later, the full version of the phone call leaked, and that confirmed Taylor's story. He never mentions that he's going to call her a bitch, and in fact, she specifically says, at least you're not calling me a bitch. So Taylor gets vindicated. Okay, what does any of this have to do with music law? I've tried to make this part as truncated as possible. I didn't even get into the Justin Bieber part of it, but the context is necessary. Now, I'm a really big fan of Kanye's music. I do believe he has legitimate mental health issues, so I kind of hesitate to make him the villain here. But luckily, there's a bigger villain here, and his name is Scooter Braun. He was the manager of both Kanye and Justin Bieber, and he was involved in not only that song, but also that leaked audio and the music video for Famous, which contained a naked wax dummy of Taylor Swift, something Taylor later referred to as revenge porn. Taylor blamed Scooter Braun for a lot of the stuff that went down. She said that she received incessant manipulative bullying at his hands for years. So remember that name, Scooter Braun. Now, Taylor Swift had signed a 13-year deal with Big Machine when she was a teenager, and she released six albums in that time, and all six were enormous hits. But as per her contract, all six were owned by Big Machine. As Taylor started getting older and more savvy about the music business, she really wanted to own her own masters. She's always been about control. She wanted to own her own music. For years, she made offers to Big Machine to buy the rights, but she was never given the chance. So as the end of her record deal is approaching, finally they say that they will sell her the masters, but only if she agrees to re-sign with them, and then she's only going to be able to buy back one for every new album that she delivered. So they never reach an arrangement, the contract expires in November of 2018, and Taylor signs with a different record label, Republic Records. And she made sure that part of her deal with the new label is that she owns her masters going forward. But then in 2019, what Taylor called the worst case scenario happened. Scott Borchetta sold her masters to, of all people, Scooter Braun. Taylor is devastated, and she's not shy about putting them on blast publicly. She writes on her blog, Never in my worst nightmares did I imagine the buyer would be Scooter. Anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the word Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was when I was either crying or trying not to. He knew what he was doing. They both did. Controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them in perpetuity. Taylor's very public feelings get a lot of support. The singer Kelly Clarkson even tweeted, you should just go re-record your old songs. And Scooter knew that this was a possibility, but he stated that she would never do it. When she said she might do it, he said she's bluffing. Because nobody had ever re-recorded whole albums before, let alone six albums. It would be enormously costly and time-consuming, and it just wouldn't make sense, especially for an artist who's still in their prime and releasing new records. But then, Scooter started blocking Taylor from using her own songs in this documentary that she was making. Taylor reaches out to Scooter Braun to buy the masters from him, but he says before they can even start negotiating, she has to sign an NDA saying that she will never say anything bad about Scooter in public again. So finally, Taylor had had enough, and she takes the unprecedented step of going back to re-record all of her old albums. She tells Billboard, it's going to be fun. It'll feel like regaining a freedom and taking back what's mine. The first album that she re-recorded was her second album, Fearless. She released it in February 2021. Taylor also had the foresight to name the album and every song on the album with the parenthetical Taylor's version, making it clear to fans and to people who potentially wanted to license these songs that if they went with this version, they would be supporting Taylor. By the way, that clip that I played earlier of the song You Belong With Me, of course, I used Taylor's version. The re-recorded Fearless went to number one in countries all over the world. And she followed it later that year with Red, and then in July 2023, the album Speak Now. She got back most of the original players to play on these albums. She improved a lot of the songs slightly. Her vocals sound better. She's a better singer now than she was then. But for the most part, it's hard to tell the difference. And then she also packed the albums with previously unreleased tracks and versions of her songs. One of those was a 10-minute version of her song All Too Well from the album Red. And that song went to number one on the Billboard charts. 
It became the longest song ever to top the chart, breaking the record set by Don McLean's eight-minute American Pie. And the re-recorded albums are not just breaking sales and chart records, they are potentially changing the music business itself. More and more artists are becoming aware of the importance of owning your own work, and the potential pitfalls of signing with a major label. Scooter Braun eventually sold the masters to a private equity firm, but with everyone considering Taylor's versions to be the definitive versions, the value of her previously recorded music has decreased. In 2016, Taylor was giving a speech at the Grammys, and this was just after everything that had gone down with the song Famous. In her speech, she said, As the first woman to win Album of the Year at the Grammys twice, I want to say to all the young women out there, there are going to be people along the way who will try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. But if you just focus on the work and you don't let those people sidetrack you, someday when you get where you're going, you'll look around and you will know that it was you and the people who love you who put you there. And that will be the greatest feeling in the world. Thank you for this moment. So we've established that you don't need permission to cover a song. The mechanical license is compulsory, but what do you need permission for? But basically, anything else that you might do to a song. If you change the words too much, you aren't covering it anymore, you're creating what's called a derivative work, and that requires permission. And there's not an exact measure of when a cover becomes a derivative work, but you're allowed to make a few changes. So Luke Combs didn't change the gender when covering Fast Car, but if he did, that probably would have been okay. The melody and lyrics are the same. Another time you'll need permission is if you're going to use the song in any kind of visual medium. You need a different kind of license called a synchronization license. So if Luke Combs wants to use his version of Fast Car in a commercial or a movie, now he does need permission from the copyright holder of the underlying composition, Tracy Chapman. The law gives the holders of synchronization rights total control. They can charge whatever they want, and they can deny the license if they want. Licenses are a really important part of music, even for the consumer. If you've ever purchased like a song off of iTunes, for example, you didn't actually buy any music. You don't own the MP3. You can't resell it to somebody if you want. What you actually did was enter into a licensing agreement where you got the rights to listen to that MP3. And there are a lot of different licenses under copyright law, but we're not going to talk about all of them. What I want to talk about now is the innovation that has basically taken over the musical world in the last 40 years or so and heavily involves copyright law and licensing. And that is sampling. So sampling is something that has origins way before hip-hop or current pop music that uses it. People have been making loops and manipulating tape and sounds for decades. There was a French collage art called Music Concrete that was basically early sampling. Artists like Brian Eno and Stevie Wonder started experimenting with sampling in the 70s. In fact, the origins of hip-hop didn't really feature sampling as we think of it today. Hip-hop evolved from DJs playing records at parties, and early innovators realized that instead of just playing a whole song and then playing the next one, they could keep people dancing longer by manipulating and editing the records. If they had two copies of the same record, they could loop a part of a song. They could isolate just a danceable drum break and loop it over and over and keep people on the dance floor. They could play one song on top of another. And then at these parties, you had a master of ceremonies, an MC who would come out and would talk over the records. That morphed into them rhyming and then rapping, and hip-hop music was born. So using previously recorded material was embedded in the genre from the beginning. It wouldn't have made any sense for rappers to rap over quote-unquote original music because that's not what the genre was. One of the very first recorded hip-hop songs, and definitely the most famous early one, was the song Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Sylvia Robinson, who was the owner of Sugar Hill Records who produced Rapper's Delight, actually had a hard time finding rappers that would appear on the record. A lot of people that she talked to didn't think that hip-hop should be recorded, that it was just a live performance thing. But when Rapper's Delight took off, more and more people began recording, and then of course record companies started seeing the dollar signs in this new thing called hip-hop. Rapper's Delight didn't actually use a sample. They had a band record what was basically an instrumental cover of the Sheik song Good Times, something that we would now call an interpolation. 
A sample means using the actual recording. It was actually a term that was coined by two Australian inventors. They had created this synthesizer called the Fairlight CMI, or a computer musical instrument. And to get the sounds on the Fairlight, they had recorded one second of a piano sound from a radio broadcast, and they manipulated it to make their synthesizer sound. And they called that process sampling. The Fairlight came out in 1979 and was really popular with big pop artists in the 80s like Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel. Gabriel was also compiling a library of sounds which he might use on the album. For this, he used a computerized instrument called a Fairlight. Any sound can be fed into it, stored, and played back on its keyboard. See, if I pick up this mic, for an example, and uh, press S for sample, we can put in the sound, I hope. Over here we have the uh, mummy, the waveform, and it should be up on the keyboard. And technology kept advancing to make sampling easier. The Hong Kong electronics manufacturer Akai released their sampler, the Akai MPC, in 1988. And that became the gold standard for hip-hop producers going forward. So to make hip-hop records, producers did what those original DJs at the parties did. They took old records and they made something new out of them. And as the music evolved and the 80s went on, producers got more and more creative. Producers like Prince Paul, Public Enemies, The Bomb Squad, The Dust Brothers were creating collages of samples, taking little bits from tons of different records and making something completely new and different. In fact, it became a source of pride for producers to have other people not be able to recognize their samples. The more transformative you were, the less recognizable the sample that you used, the cooler it was. Sampling is an art form that creates a common language, that pays respect to history and the music of the past. And all this was operating in kind of a legal gray area. Sampling was definitely not something that was anticipated by the copyright law, not even as it had just been amended in 1976. As rappers started to get signed to major labels and corporations were getting involved in hip-hop, their lawyers realized that they probably did need permission to sample, and they were going to need two types of permission, two different licenses. They would have to license the actual musical composition, and they would have to license the master recording. And unlike a cover, neither one of those things are compulsory. They require permission, and the rights holder can set whatever fee they want. But nobody was totally clear on the rules. What if you just sampled some drums? Like this famous break from the James Brown song Funky Drummer. Under the current copyright law, you need permission from the person that wrote that song, not the permission from the drummer playing the drums. And that didn't seem to make much sense. Also, there was confusion over how much of a sample you had to use before you had to get permission. What if you only used a couple seconds? What if you transformed it so much that even the copyright holder wouldn't know it was their song? Well, in the late 80s and the early 1990s, a couple of court cases came that settled some of these issues, and surprise, surprise, they were not good for hip-hop. Now, like I said before, I am not a lawyer. So to talk about these cases, I wanted to bring in somebody who is a lawyer. There's only one person I know who loves copyright law and hip-hop as much as I do, and that's the attorney Mark Jaffe. So I talked to Mark to help us break down some of these infamous hip-hop sampling cases. My name is Mark Jaffe with Five Bridges Law. I practice copyright trademark law. I've been a lawyer for more than 15 years. I represent creatives, authors, and artists of all kinds. I worked for record companies throughout the 90s and uh, early O's doing licensing and distribution deals in the 80s when I think you were young and I was a teenager and hip-hop was really becoming something so nationally known. The sampling was what we consider to be like a wild, wild west. There really wasn't any knowledge of whether or not it was allowed, but it was it was very common. Many considered like the cultural high point of that era to be a couple of albums in 1989. Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, produced by the Dust Brothers, which had like hundreds of samples, unauthorized, and De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, produced by Prince Paul, which became such a problem with its unauthorized and very creative use of samples that it was essentially out of print for years. That one led to one of the first initial disputes over the sample because one of the cuts, um, it was called Transcending Live from Mars. It wasn't even like a whole song. It was just a lead into it, like a one minute lead into another song. They called it a bug out piece and it had some strings on it and, and the loop of, um, I think, a French instruction tape and a bit 
from a turtle song, not Happy Together, but another turtle song, just the strings. And it angered two of the original members of the Turtles who played on the track. For years, I was under this misconception that they wrote the song, but they didn't. They were just the performers on it. And that kind of held up Three Feet High and Rising for years to come and made art. And it was one of the things that made artists really change their ways. The lawsuit that probably made the created the biggest shift was the one against Bismarcky, one of the original greats, R.I.P. And if you read the early opinions like that one, they're not even making a very clear distinction between the composition copyright and the sound recording copyright, the way you typically would today. There's greater knowledge about that today. But back then, I don't even think people were really articulating the difference. And if you read the Bismarcky decision, they sort of go back and forth on what they're suing over. But the judge took a very hard stance on it. Just some additional context here. So Gilbert O'Sullivan is the singer-songwriter from the late 60s, early 70s, and he has this hit in 1971 with a song called Alone Again Naturally. And Bismarcky samples this for a song he calls Alone Again from his album I Need a Haircut. And Bismarcky and his record company actually did reach out to Gilbert O'Sullivan for permission. But Gilbert O'Sullivan never responded, and the album came out anyway, and then he sued. Now when Gilbert O'Sullivan talks about this case, he says that he did not give permission and they released the song anyway. And he frames it in a very coded way. And I heard it and I didn't approve it. So we told him that he had to, to withdraw it and stuff. And, he, and he, again, you see that culture. He said, nah, we, we don't care. We're just going to do it anyway. So again, you see that culture. See that culture. That culture. But according to other sources, they told him when the album was supposed to be released, hoping that he would respond by that date, and he didn't respond in time, so they put out the album anyway. And remember, this case was a landmark case about sampling, so it wasn't as clear back then that you had to be so strict about getting permission. The case is decided by this judge, Kevin Thomas Duffy, who very clearly does not understand hip-hop, does not understand the art of sampling, and doesn't even seem to have a firm grasp on copyright law. Or the separation of church and state. He opens the opinion with one of the Ten Commandments and then basically just says, this is theft, and actually recommends that they file criminal charges against Bismarcky. Opening the opinion with thou shalt not steal and essentially treating any type of unauthorized sampling as, as, as just a wrong and genuine copyright infringement. It doesn't go into doctrines we later, talk, we later discuss, like de minimis or fair use. It was just infringement wrong. I don't think it really took into account how little of it was used or how creatively it was used. It's 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 almost disturbing, right? It is bizarre. And I don't even like to call copyright infringement illegal or theft, but it is infringement, right? The moralism in that decision, I think, outweighs any real legal analysis. That was around 1991, still kind of in that heyday of, of hip-hop sampling and things started to shift it was a it was a cultural shift but the cultural shift was i think in part was in large part due to the law so for like 30 years now we've had this regime where it's understood that when you're going to use a sample or at least when it's noticeable at least when you don't want to get caught at least on on anything besides the very underground level you're going to clear it that's one clearance for the composition and one clearance for uh the sound recording i think this one opinion the De La Soul dispute, which resulted in a big settlement. Uh, the notorious dispute over the Vanilla Ice song, which sampled the Queen David Bowie song under pressure, and he went on TV and tried to explain it away and, and came up with more foolish. These were all these were all things that started to make things change. It's the record labels who need to be safe and don't want to get sued out of oblivion. And all it takes is a few unhappy a few unhappy campers. So record labels started to play it safe and insist on clearing samples. And I, in my view, one of the ways that, one of the ways you can hear the musical shift is um, you can't touch this, the MC Hammer song. And it's a great song, but unlike what you hear on Three Feet High and Rising, where they took songs and, and they really recreated them and took a lot of relatively obscure stuff like Samadhi and Mad Labs, things that people found out about from those records. They took a hit and kind of recreated the hit. And it did work really well. So that, you know, like, we're, we're still doing it. But that was, that was more about taking what was already great about a song and using that as opposed to redefining it. Now, you probably know about fair use. Fair use is when you can use a copyrighted work without permission because, among other reasons, you're making a transformative use of it and using it in some way that we say the copyright law doesn't want to prohibit because copyright is supposed to encourage creativity. 
one of the most fair use decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States. It is a hip hop group, but it's not it's not a sample. That's two live crew when they redid Pretty Woman with smutty lyrics. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court and they said they were parodying the original song because the song was wholesome and we're going to do it with our type of lyrics. Ironically, on their clean album, but you know, it's smuttier than, smuttier than the original song that we know best known for Roy Orbison's version. And the Supreme Court accepted that. They didn't find for use, they sent it back to lower courts, but they accepted that if you parody a work, if you're commenting on the work, that necessitates you're using it. If you look at the Bismarcky opinion, for instance, you're not looking at sophisticated legal reasoning from the court. I don't think sampling was really understood. I think when Two Live Crew got to the Supreme Court, they had some pretty sophisticated legal arguments. And that's a fair use argument that's not just applied to music. That's really one of the most important fair use decisions there is. With sampling, and that's and with sampling, it's it's been cyclical because there was so much threat of litigation. The sampling regime that we know of started like 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, and that's what we're used to. Copyright professors have this idea. They hold like Paul's book, Petique and Three Feet High and Rising as like the pinnacle because it's for copyright professors, right? That's the pinnacle. And they, I think some of them don't really understand that the culture and the music have thrived since then. Say that there's been no more creativity means you weren't paying attention. Dale, you can't think Dale will stop being creative just because they had to get licenses for their songs. They, they got Maceo Parker in their song. Culture survives regardless. One of the things I really love about that Two Life Crew case is that there's a quote in it from an old British politician from the 19th century, Lord Ellenborough. The court quoted him saying, While I shall think myself bound to secure every man in the enjoyment of his copyright, one must not put manacles upon science. And I love the idea that censoring Two Live Crew, the group that did the song Me So Horny, would be putting manacles upon science. But that right there illustrates the beautiful push-pull in copyright law. To every cow it's calf, to every book it's copy, but not if it will put manacles upon science. And one more for good measure. Mark had mentioned the importance of that Two Live Crew case and how it has implications broader than just doing parody. Fair use is something I think about all the time because I infringe on copyrights constantly. Every single TikTok video I make and pretty much every single podcast episode I've done has been full of copyright infringement. Even this one, I did not have Taylor Swift's permission to use the song You Belong With Me. All I have is the hope that if anybody did come after me for infringing on their copyrights, I could argue that it was fair use. I'm trying to make it for educational purposes. I try to only use as much as I need to get my point across. I definitely am not making any money off of it. Although actually the Two Live Crew case established that even if it was commercial, it could still be fair use. I think I would have a pretty good case, but you never know. And this is part of why I said at the beginning that Weird Al, who makes parody songs, asks for permission. He's pretty sure that if he ever did get sued, he would be protected by the doctrine of fair use since he's making parodies. But there hasn't really been a lot of case law testing it. And does he want to risk that? Probably not. And I'm sure he wants to keep a good relationship with artists in the music industry. And he also just seems like a genuinely nice guy. So he doesn't want to parody somebody's song if they're not happy with it. So he definitely could have legally parodied a Prince song, but why get Prince mad at you if you don't have to? So Weird Al did ask Prince, Prince said no. And if you're wondering what was the parody that Weird Al would have done of Prince, he said his idea was to do 1999 and do an infomercial where you could get anything you wanted by dialing 1-800-something-1999. He also pitched ideas for Let's Go Crazy, When Doves Cry, and Kiss. Prince said no to all four. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down again. You think that it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. This episode was written and produced by me, Patrick Hicks. Thank you, as always, to Brian Ashiba and the band Joyweather for the theme song to this podcast, a song I do have permission to use. Thank you to my special guest, Mark Jaffe. You can find him making awesome videos on TikTok about copyright law. Thank you to all my patrons on Patreon. I haven't forgotten about you. New content coming soon. And thank you, of course, as always, to my wife.